Welcome to Coin Flips and Controversies, an OrthoBullet's original series dedicated to exploring gray zone decisions in orthopedic surgery. This episode of Coin Flips and Controversies is sponsored by the Evolving Concepts in Orthopedic Trauma Course, taking place this February 24th through 26th, 2023 at the Westgate Park City Resort and Spa in Park City, Utah. At this time, we will hand it over to the webinar faculty. We hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome, everybody, to the uh, OrthoBullets uh, webinar. I'm joined by two awesome surgeons that have been friends of mine and colleagues for a while, Dr. Rich Yoon, who's in Jersey City, New Jersey, and Dr. James Blair, who is currently in Augusta, Georgia, for some time longer. <laughs> Shout out to a uh, upcoming course that uh, I'm chairing in Park City, uh, Utah, Evolving Concepts in Orthopedic Trauma. This course takes place in February, the end of the month, in a great location where you will basically be able to learn about evolving concepts and orthopedic trauma things now that are becoming hot topics. You'll learn during the day, and then you'll ski the rest of the day and then go back for more in the evening. So it's been uh, a good course the last few years with good attendance. And thus far, attendees have been very happy with the, the setup of the course where they're allowed to not just learn, but also ski. So hopefully you all can take a look at that course and consider coming out where you'll learn about cases like this, as well as many other cases that are, I would say, germane to people both taking trauma call, whether they're traumatologists or not. So we will go ahead and get started with uh, this particular case. This is a 38-year-old female who was in a uh, motor vehicle collision as a restrained driver who presented to our facility from the scene complaining of bilateral leg pain. She was initially seen and worked up by the trauma service and uh, told to us that she was quote-unquote isolated ortho. We've all heard that before where they lose interest in the patient, lose interest in the physiology of the patient. And so they're like, basically, here you are, do what you want with her. Her uh, images, you'll see shortly. But her injuries include a right closed common distal uh, femur fracture, a right uh, type 2 open proximal tibia fracture with articular extension, and a left closed common tibial shaft fracture. On presentation, she's also excuse me, a non-smoker and she's otherwise healthy. She has no known medical problems. In the uh, trauma bay, her vitals demonstrate some tachycardia with a heart in the 120s. Her blood pressure is a little bit labile at 90s over 60s, and she has a lactate that comes back at 3.8. She's alert and oriented times three. There is no other system trauma to include head, neck, thoracic, or abdominal trauma. Again, she's isolated ortho. On exam, uh, she has a four centimeter open wound on the right medial proximal leg, which does not extend up over onto the knee joint. And she is neuro intact in bilateral extremities and her compartments are soft. And there is nothing else on her exam to suggest compartment syndrome. These are some of the relevant images. This is an AP of the knee obtained in the trauma bay that uh, shows a comminuted distal femoral fracture. You can see that there is a metaphyseal comminution with extension into the joint. You can see an intercondylar split. Can't really tell whether there's a multi-fragmentary comminution there or not, which is why you'd want to get a CT scan, which we'll get into later. You can also see comminution of the metaphysis of the proximal tibia with what looks like a non-displaced crack fracture coming in to the joint here. There's a lateral. Again, this suggests there might be some sort of Hoffa component, but you wouldn't want to get a CT scan to better evaluate that. Better image of the tibia. There's a lateral. Again, splint material kind of overrides the picture a little bit, but you get a sense that there's quite a bit of comminution. Here's a relevant CT cut axial at the joint, which does show that Hoffa fragment of the lateral femoral condyle. And then again, you see air tracking up into the joint through the open fracture of the tibia with a non-displaced fracture. 
This is after a provisional external fixer was applied. And then the contralateral tibia, which shows, again, comminuted segmental fracture, which is closed. So I'm going to go back to the images and get your guys' thoughts. So James, you see this, this x-ray, you're called, it's 10 o'clock in the morning. This isn't 2, 2 a.m. This is 10 o'clock. What are you thinking when you see this, this image of this, this fracture in a patient that's got a little bit of a borderline situation with their physiology? So I know that there's, there's plenty of literature to suggest being aggressive with these, but for me, with somebody who's a little bit laid off from a physiologic status, one point of their lactate being a little bit higher than I'd like to see. For me, this is temporizing. This is damage control. We're going to debris and irrigate out the open tibia fracture, see what that wound looks like, see how much of that bone may or may not go in the trash. But for me, I don't see any reason why even at 10 o'clock in the morning, if I have nothing else going on the day that I'm going to do anything more than get a lay of the land, temporize, let's resuscitate her and let's get a game plan. Rich, what are you thinking? Yeah, 100% agree with the lactate 3.8. I think you need to stabilize and get her out of the OR. We know what the data shows. If you try to acute early care of this, you're going to increase the rates of ARDS, multi-organ failure. You kind of want to just temporize and um, obviously get it clean and then come back and fight for another day. Even if you get to the operating room and they do like another point of care lab and they're like, oh, hey, Dr. Blair, her lactate is now 1.9 and her pressures are stable and her heart rate's coming down. I'm still not thinking anything more than maybe I just don't have the mental fortitude to even consider like tackling something like this without like kind of sitting down and thinking about it a little bit more than just mm -hmm. temporizing. But even well, then, yeah. even if they told me her she was perfect, I don't think I'm doing anything more than temporizing, breeding, live the fight another day. Yeah, absolutely. Because if not, you can it, it can go south real quick. And to be honest with you, with this level of complexity, you know, you kind of want to be able to think it out and be be thoughtful about definitive fixation if you can, just because otherwise, you know, you might real do do some real harm to the patient. Yeah, I agree with both of you guys. My plan with this was to temporize this right out of the gate. What about the the closed tibia? You know, it's not urgent. You're gonna splint it. You're gonna X fix it. You're gonna nail it the same day. What, what do you guys think about that? I have a lower threshold to nail this because it is at least, yeah, first glance, a more simple fracture pattern. Again, if she's trending in the right direction, if, you know, if we repeat the lactate and it's five, then I would probably be more likely to X fix that side too. I think you can make an argument to split it. I don't, it doesn't look like she's length stable. So I'd be more akin to X fix it, but I would want to see her trending in the right direction before we did anything definitive on that side. But I, I would have less of a concern of nailing that side if she is doing better. Yeah. I think the left tibia, you know, if it's reasonable, it's closed, uh, leave it in a splint, address the, uh, address the floating knee side first, and then, you know, just kind of resuscitate it and come back. You can always start picking these off kind of one by one if you need to. So I think the left side too, if it's, if it's reasonably aligned and it's in a splint and the splint's good, I think you just, you know, leave it alone in the splint and just address the right. Yeah, I agree with both you guys. For me in this particular situation, just because of the certain day of the week it was with my OR schedule and how busy we were that week, I felt like if I trended the labs and drop and she was going the right direction, we would probably just get that side done, get one of them knocked out, which helps her mobilize a little bit better while she waits for her second surgery. So, you know, we, we I can't remember what the labs were when we repeated them, but I mean, she was well below two when we repeated them at the end of the external fixator after we'd already debrided her. So we were like, okay. We can probably proceed with just getting the nail done. Let's get one of them done now, so we have less to worry about next time. Because I agree with you guys, this is going to be this is a complex this is a complex case, and you're going to want to think this out. And and these can these can take a while if you're 
if you're, uh, you know, doing some of these advanced techniques we've been talking about, like extreme nails, like dual plates, unilateral, et cetera, or plate nail. Mike, you bring up a interesting point too. I think, you know, for the, for the audience here, it's important to trend it. There, you know, anesthesia is rolling in with, with units probably resuscitating already, but, you know, temporizing the right automatically reduces the blood volume that's going into the thigh, obviously. That in itself, in addition to the resuscitation of colloid, it'll it'll get you trending to that right direction. And, and I agree with you. If all of a sudden she's 38 and she's got a good reserve, they brought her back up, then certainly, you know, nailing that left would be great. But doing doing the X fix first, I think, is a paramount importance that you brought up there. Yep. And like I, I I like the point that you brought up of at least potentially letting her mobilize on that left side too, because who knows when you're going to get back in, what the OR schedule is like, what else is coming in, you know, to at least get the one side done if you can. And at least, you know, she's got a shot at mobilizing and maybe getting around. And mm-hmm. who knows? I mean, maybe this this may go on for another week before you get to it, depending on kind of what else is going on. Uh, yep. I, I think that's a point that can't be understated too. So she gets a CAT scan. This is the actual image. So you guys obviously both can see the Hoffa fragment. So what are you guys thinking as far as reconstruction options for her? You know, does the presence of the Hoffa say, oh, I'm not going to nail this. I'm going to have to do plates, plate nail. Can you do nail alone? What do you, you guys see this image? What do you, what start, starts going through your head? I think you purposely picked three, if not grandchildren of Tampa. So, you know, we're all nailers. This is all nailable. <laughs> Otherwise, um, you know, for me, it's, she's 38. You know, the bone quality is going to be good, you know, getting, and I'm, I'm thanking God that the femur itself is relatively closed. If, if the, if it was a true, true 3A open going all the way up the femur and I got to throw a bunch of stuff out, I'm, I'm, I'm getting more and more depressed, but since the femur is closed, I'm going to probably want to do it, uh, nail the, nail the femur. Approach wise, it really depends on where that open fracture was and that skin and how bad it looked. You know, I definitely would try to avoid going back through it. But if you need to, if you have to get to the joint to get to the Hoffa, you might need to get creative with your incision. But, you know, certainly for me, I'm going to, I'm going to try to uh, rod uh, long bones when I can. And for the tibia, I'm probably going to, probably going to lead toward a little lean towards something like a nail plate combo. But I am, uh, again, I, 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 you got to plan out your incisions for me. James. So. I agree with Rich, with what Rich is saying, and and so to me, my question is, or my independent fixation of the joint is that going to hinder a start point of any intramedullary fixation I'm going to do? And then number two, what is the quality of the cortex on the median lateral side where my interlocking screws presumably would be? If the entire medial cortex is so comminuted that no interlocking screw is going to get any osseous purchase on that side. But I'm saying this is probably not going to be a nailable fracture powder, maybe at least not nailable alone. At least in the cut that you have here, sure, we can get that coronal plane fracture reduced and stabilized with screws that are out of the way where any intramedullary device would be. We can get that sagittal plane, uh, that, that intercondylar split reduced and fixed with implants that are out of the way of where the nail would be. And I still think that we're going to be able to get good interlocking screw fixation. And so I don't, I, I don't know what a plate in this case, you know, plate or nail plate, I don't know what the plate's going to buy you because I think that you're going to get good fixation with the interlocking screws. Now, again, if there's a substantial amount of comminution in the trochlea or substantial amount of comminution uh, in the intercondylar fracture pattern, 
then I'm thinking that I, I need more fixation of where those screws are going to come from lateral to medial. But, but for me, I don't know what more a plate's going to buy me because I think my, I'm going to get good interlocking screws and my fixation is not going to be in the way of where a nail would be. So just like we we're saying, I'm going to, I'm going to openly reduce those coronal or those articular fractures, get them stabilized probably with lax screw fixation and, you know, directly visualize the joint line before we put any kind of intramedullary reamers and, and things like that in it. Okay. So this patient's wound is, uh, it's, it was more transverse, probably about five centers below the, the joint line medial. So, and it, there was no stripping. So we didn't go crazy with extending it or doing longitudinal extension of it because of the, I knew I would need to make an incision over the knee to work on the, the, the joint surface. So for, to your point, Rich, the, the wound, day of injury, washed and clothes, we take her back. I think this is like day three. We took her back maybe day four skin looks great. So really does not affect where you can put your incisions over the knee. In light of that, what kind of incision are you going to do to address this joint work? Um, if it's a transverse incision, I'm, I'm less worried about um, an injury zone. But for me, I probably I probably start midline, maybe cheat a little bit lateral going over the knee because I'm probably going to end up putting a plateau plate lateral nail in the tibia. But for the femur, I want to be able to flex it all the way up, do a lateral parapetellar. That'll allow me to get access up and down at the same time. Wait, hold on. Where's the hop was lateral or medial? It's lateral. Lateral, yeah. So lateral hyperteller. Luckily, it's it's more in the midline, so you don't have to hyperflex too much. But I'm probably doing kind of a midline cheat and lateral as I'm coming over the knee, just to get a little bit farther away from that open wound. But that's probably my thought. And James, probably something similar or different. Yeah, I'll I'll do kind of more of a mini splash buckler where, and so instead of being lateral hyperteller, probably. Be another tick more lateral. I just don't want to struggle finding that combination or finding the articular fracture on the, uh, on the lateral side. And especially before we even nail or do anything, we can really displace that articular segment and it can be shortened. The patella is going to get out of the way pretty easily. I think, I think through that approach, we'll be able to see anything, but, but yeah, lateral parapetella or a touch more lateral uh, or anterior lateral, like a mini squat sparkler, I think will really yeah, show James, me everything that I, th- I need to see. Yeah, James, you bring up a good point too, utilizing the shaft. Once you get in, because the shaft is broken, the knee's going to be, you know, apex posterior anyway. And the hoffa is going to be kind of like looking at you. So using the shaft, right at you, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Using the shaft to get your view, I think certainly help you get those coronal fractures uh, much more easily. So, Rich, you mentioned probably some sort of a plate or plate nail for the tibia. What's the rationale there for you as opposed to maybe a nail only or plate only? It's, I mean, it's, it's a proximal third, proximal quarter. So obviously the forming forces of the extensor mechanism and the pads are going to make this not want to be straight. For me, when it's this combination holding out to length, you know, there's obviously there's certain, certain tricks. You can, you can use an X-fix, travel attraction. You can jack it out with distractor if you can. But uh, for me, if it's this, if this floppy, I think they're getting on a lateral plate, putting some posterior screws and holding to the shaft can certainly just help you uh, obtain and maintain your length. And then you're, you can always go into a semi-extended position because I'll probably do the femur first. And then that, that'll just make my easier my life easier, kind of go back on time. Last thing I want to do is, you know, do a fix a hard femur and then, you know, get to the tibia and have that just add hours because I'm struggling. So adding the plate as an adjunct kind of permanent fixation put on provisionally is for me in my hands is going to make, make this case got, go a lot more efficiently. Do you think you need the plate for the fixation overall, or you're using it mostly for a provisional fixation? Um, 
So I think that to piggyback off of what Kubiak's early thinking, I don't know if he ever published this biomechanical study, but I think that for both, I think provisionally it's going to help you update and maintain the, the reduction, but getting the plate kind of close to the nail. And if I can, that kickstand screw, I'm going to try and if it lines up appropriately, it's not going to the fracture. I'll probably try and link it because then it's a unitized unit where you can have an early range of motion. I'm not saying that a 38 year old with this kind of bone quality will not. I mean, this person has got severe soft tissue damage around the bone anyway. She's going to scar up, but I just think it's going to be a, a little bit more of a biomechanically sound construct just to get her mobilized a little bit earlier. It might be overkill, but um, I'd probably just leave it in since it's there uh, just to just kind of help the construct. So you talk about linking your implants. So screws through the nail and the plate. Yeah, I think it honestly, it, it makes it makes more sense in the tibia than distal femur because of the lever arm and the mechanism from the extensor mechanism. I think that there's a significantly about significantly more force in the proximal tibia around the tubercle, the metaphysis than the distal femur even sees. So if you can link it, I think I don't think it's I don't think it's necessary, but I think it certainly will enhance your fixation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Fancy. Fancy. I like to try to do that, but it never ever works out for me. <laughs> how much how much of that or is any of that metaphyseal bone completely stripped and, and void of soft tissues? Like are, are you did you ever throw any of that away? Because I think that that would make some of the tiny guys had nothing on them, but the big pieces all had good soft tissue. So we lucked out in that set. We didn't have any, you know, critical segments of bone missing that would need spacer or transport or, or make the construct tenuous. Yeah. Well, for, you know, for all the residents and the fellows on the call on, on watching this too, I always tell my trainees when it's this common and you're going in and open, especially on that medial side, the PEZ is attached to it, right? So be very careful what you're stripping because if it's attached to it and it's relatively clean, I'm keeping that thing because it's still it's still got blood supply that's robust to it. So just be really cognizant of what Dr. Beltran said about, you know, the little guys that are not attached certainly leave, but don't go in there gung-ho, just ripping everything out. See what's attached and be careful about it first, please. All right, we'll zip through some of these questions. So we'll go through the first poll question and then I'll show the results and I'll get you guys thoughts. So at the time of the emergent IND of the right proximal tibia, would you perform definitive or temporizing fixation on the right and left? So the options were, you don't perform, you won't, we're not going to wash it out. I don't, like, I'd hope the answer to that's zero. Maybe somebody will answer that if they think they're going to hand it up to their partner, but uh, temporize both sides, definitively fix both sides, temporize the right and fix the left, temporize the right and temporize, or definitively fix the right, temporize the left. I think m- we all agree that's probably a bad idea. And I'm sure that most people that are answering this question are going to be in the minority there. Other or don't vote because it's outside expertise. So we'll see what the poll shows here. And it looks like a majority, more than half, agreed with us that temporize the right side because of the complexity, because of the patient's physiology. But hey, if they're doing reasonably well, it's probably a good idea or not unreasonable to just go ahead and fix the left side, give them a leg to walk on and knock one of the three out, presumably the easier of the three, but still to have less one less thing to do the next time you go back. And uh, this relevant article, this is for all you guys on the residents and fellows out there. This is an article that, gosh, it's now 20 years old, but it's still a classic article on damage control versus early total care by uh, Pape and his crew out in Germany. So this is a nice one to have. If you haven't read this paper, I would encourage you all to get it and read it and know it well, because this is the paper that kind of pushed things back towards damage control for 
particularly for your unsealed patients and for most of your borderline patients too, like this patient where, you know, they can really go south quickly if you're doing, you know, multiple long bone surgeries on a patient. And then you get in a situation where they stay on the vent for long periods of time and they get multi-organ system failure. Then you regret doing all that work initially. Are you guys surprised by those results? What do you guys think as you guys both no, train? I, I think that that's kind of what I expected where if you add up the temporized right, definitive left, and then temporized both, you know, it's, it's well over uh, three quarters. Yeah. That, that's, that's kind of what I would say. I'm going to get the folks next one who answered one in five a pass. I'm assuming that it was on their phone and they, just, they did it too quick, but <laughs> <laughs> that's always possible. Yeah. <laughs> As expected. As expected. All right. The next poll question, if operative fixation is chosen, what would be your choice of definitive fixation for the right distal femur? Again, we've kind of touched on this one. We'll show it here shortly. I, I tend to favor nails. And if, again, like you guys said, if the bone is good quality, it's going to be for me, usually nail only. I've gotten more and more away from plates and isolation for the vast majority of femurs, including C3 femurs. You know, if I've got enough bone for a couple interlocks and some blockers, I'm going to put a nail on that plus minus a plate. And I just, I lateral only plate for me is just something that I've rarely used. And I'm not a big dual plater either. I know there's some groups of, uh, out there that are big on lateral medial plates and they're starting to present that stuff, but I just don't see the upside of putting two plates as opposed to just putting a nail on a plate or a nail alone. So, uh, the options here would be external fixation, uh, includes limited internal fixation, uh, ORAF with your typical plates and screws or whatever nail with, with or without lag screws, ORAF plus an external fixator, plate and nail, arthroplasty, which seems a bit aggressive. Amputation seems very unreasonable unless you're dealing with some sort of a dysvascular limb, which this is definitely not the case. Again, for over 400 people who answer this question, the majority are going to do ORAF, which uh, plate only, presumably uh, one or two plates here. So what do you guys think about that? Good, bad, indifferent? I mean, I don't think it's wrong. You know, studies have shown several now. I mean, uh, we, we've looked at a couple of systematic, we, we've performed a couple of systematic reviews for native and periprosthetic. And I know Dunbar just EPUB had a printed randomized trial. It's dealer's choice. Again, it's not the metal that reduces the bone. We still have to reduce everything before introducing everything. And it has to be done right. Certainly you could screw up a nail just as much as you could screw up a plate, but I think it's what you're good at as long as you're doing it right. Working length is appropriate. Balance fixation. If you're plating, you know, not not filling every screw hole with locking screws, um, you know, staying outside of the zone of 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 the uh, the fracture zone and going long enough. Similarly with the nail, you know, making sure you avoid the apex posterior deformity, making sure that you you avoid any kind of bell clapper effect that might happen with some blockers. Uh, again, the articular surface, right? I, I think it's dealer's choice, you know, and I think the outcomes support that. James? Yeah, I, I, I agree. Like using ORIF plates and screws long, it's definitely not wrong. If it's done right, I think that, you know, this, especially in a young, young, healthy individual has got every chance to heal. You know, I, I think that that those of us who are sort of, you know, aggressive nailers, yeah, I think inch medullary nail, lax screws, I think by and large is a little aggressive. I think there's a lot of us that feel that that, that might be better. I don't think that the, we have the literature yet to to. Def- to demonstrably prove that. Um, but I don't, I don't think that, you know, the ORIF, I don't think that that's wrong at all. It's not necessarily what I would do. I, I'm, I'm like you, I, I have to be really hard pressed to do an isolated lateral lock to femoral plate. I have to have a really good reason why I'm doing that. So that's, that's pretty unlikely for me. 
but I don't disagree with this. It's not necessarily what I would do. I would, I would do the IM nail with the lag screws, but I don't really have a problem with, uh, or I don't have any real significant controversy with the results here. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think 10 years ago, this number is probably 90%. It's probably way over to the right. Absolutely. Yeah. We're, we're seeing the trend, right? I mean, this, this trend with pushing the envelope with nails as techniques improve, implants improve, we'll be able to do things that we couldn't do 10 years ago even five years ago for certain things. So, um, and I think if you ask this question again, five years or 10 years from now, it's, it may be flipped to 180. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I think this is definitely for the vast majority of surgeons, this is the safer play too, right? And this is the way to probably stay out of trouble as best you can. Most guys are more comfortable putting plates and screws on distal femurs. You know, there's plenty of ways to screw it up and there's lots of papers on that, but I would say there's probably far more ways to screw it up, putting a nail in if you're not very good at it. So for the vast majority of guys, this is the right answer. All right, next poll question. If you choose operative management, what would be your choice of fixation for the right proximal tibia fracture? So similar answers here, you know, X-fix, ORIF, nail and screws, X-fix and ORIF, ORIF, and, so late plate and nail or amputation. Surprisingly, no arthroplasty option here, thank God. And again, the majority of people are going to use uh, plates, ORIF alone here but not as great of a percentage. So in this situation, about just over half of people, a larger percentage for this particular bone, people are choosing the nail plus minus screws. And uh, is that something that surprises you guys or you expect compared to the, no, I the, think it, the femur? Um, no, I think that that's still kind of what, what I expected. Similar to the morphology of the distal femur fracture, I think that there's still good, adequate bone stock in that proximal tibia once the articular fracture is reduced and fixated with screws that would be out of a place of nail. I think you're going to get plenty of interlocking screws that are going to be good quality with good, good osseous purchase. Um, one thing I don't see here would be plate nail, I, which is kind of what, what, what Rich is saying. And I don't think that that's wrong either, but, but no, by and large, I don't think that, that the, it's uh, down here. Uh, or you know, okay, yeah. 5%. Yeah. Okay. There you go. No, I think uh, for me, I think I'm going to have good, good, adequate bone stock. I'm going to use this as a traveling traction case for me. And so I would be intermedially nailed with live screws, but I don't have any issues or uh, problems with the uh, answer choices. I don't think RIF is wrong if it's done right. So I, 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 I disagree. I'm a little surprised because, you know, by definition of proximal third tibia. Now, I mean, we're not weight bearing this because of the Hoffa and the articular surface anyway, right? So that kind of throws out kind of the benefits of a nail, like, it, you know, early weight bearing wise, but the reason why I'm a little surprised about the plating option is that by definition, this means that this needs a dual plate, right? Because you have comminuted medial column, you cannot get this with a lateral isolated lock plate alone. It doesn't matter with new, new technology. You have to go back medial. And this is open. You already washed it out once. I'm, I'm going to try and avoid that medial side going through that soft tissue. So for me, that's why that's why it would be a nail plate for me because I need something that's going to kind of support that medial buttress. Uh, I don't want to go back through, go back through the medial open wound. And that's why for me, it'd be a, it'd be a nail plate combo. So I'm, I'm a little surprised because uh, especially for the trainees, I hope they know that you by definition for bicolors, and this is, you know, probably a middle extended plateau and more of a shaft, but if you have that level of medial combination, you need something on the medial side. And, you know, I, I try to avoid that. Yeah. And on top of the fact it was open so that that, that side's going to take longer to heal than it normally would. And you put a lateral plate only, you might think, you know, you might wait three months, let them start walking, see a little bit callous. And then they come back at four months and they're embarrassed. 
<laughs> and, and you know, you're not going to tolerate any virus when you're, when you're 38 years old. So then you got to revise it and it's just a disaster. This is, this is uh, the reference here for this particular question. This is a, this is a great paper that I still go back and read that really it talks on the results, but it's also tips, tips for these very proximal fractures, not just the, you know, your proximal third, but when you get even more proximal in that proximal quarter, like this one, where you've got very little bone to work with for your interlocks and you've got lots of deforming forces. So great paper to read, to be more facile with nailing, if you're going to attempt the, that for these particular fractures as opposed to plate. And then the final poll question for this particular case, if you choose operative management and attained the construct below, which I guess I can't see, it's what I would have, would, it's going to be the x-ray I show, what would your post-op weight-bearing status be for the right and left? So we'll just assume that we've got nails in all three bones, plus or, with that, plus or minus plates. What are you guys doing with weight-bearing for this patient? Well, weight-bearing left and uh, now weight-bearing the right. Okay. James? Same. Same. Let's say you, let's say you didn't have that Hoffer fragment. Let's say you just had a simple articular split of the proximal tibia or simple articular split of the distal femur. What are you doing for those from a weight bearing standpoint? Um, are, are, are you letting it bang on it right away? Or are you nervous like if, I am? And you, if this, if, if it was a geriatric person, I'll let them just walk on it right away for a 38 year old. I'll probably advance them to either a foot flat or a toe touch and then just convert them over six weeks. I see what you're saying. That, I mean, that was a recent study showing that even the, you know, a simple split in the trochlear is not part of the weight bearing zone. So you probably could do it. I'm just a little bit concerned about, you know, just the cartilaginous insult that happened to such a young person as well. Uh, so I'm a little bit, you know, not evidence-based, just kind of anecdotally protecting myself probably. But uh, if it was just a simple split, I'd probably start out with partial on the right and weight bearing on the left. What are you doing, Mike? It depends on the age. Just like Rich said, the the older or the more frail the person, I'm letting them, I'm letting them bang on it right away, regardless of whether there's a crack in the cartilage or not. For this, for this patient, younger active, you know, I, boy, I sure would hate to let her walk on at day one and she come back and have a displacement at, you know, when I get an x-ray two weeks, that'd be a real bummer. So I, I haven't taken the plunge yet. I know some guys have based off their own clinical experience and what's out there in the literature that they're letting people, you know, bang on these things more aggressively right away. I just haven't gotten there yet. So for me, this patient's going to be a non-weight bearing on the right, weight bearing on the left for four to six weeks. Yeah. I, I, I think I'm, uh, I think that they could be able to do it. Again, I think part of it is like we're saying, sort of knowing your patient. I mean, Mike, like when you were on the military, I mean, like if you told like a young soldier, like, oh, you can be weight bearing as tolerated, but within reason, they're going to probably be doing box jumps like the next day. You know, and you're like, you know, and she's like, yeah. okay, you know, but like if it's like a normal person, I, yeah, I think that they can probably get away with it and, and it would be fine. But yeah, I'm, I'm like you, I'm, gosh, I'm still a little too nervous to just let people sort of start banging around. I think that they would be fine. I think for the average person, I think they'll be fine, but not, right. not having yet. Can I ask a follow-up? Are you guys letting, are you guys going to let her raise her knee though? Yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Same here. Yeah. I mean, I think you've got to leave the OR with stable fixation to let them range the knee. I mean, she's already going to be at high risk for getting stiff. All right. right. I mean, she's got yep. intraarticular distal femur, proximal tibia, open fracture. I mean, she's going to want to get stiff. So you, you got to leave the room with stable fixation to let her move it. Let me, let me, let me uh, flip this around. So let's say that the left side's not a tibia. It's a both calm acetabulum. Are you still going to put, are you going to put her in a wheelchair for six weeks? Or are you going to let her maybe walk on this on the right side sooner? Or what, what are you doing then? No, nah, she's still in a wheelchair for six weeks. 
Yeah, we'll just six weeks. James, I'm, ch- I'm, I'm chicken, man. Yeah, <laughs> same, same. I like yeah. it. You're you're sure gonna look cool when she's like walking in your clinic, at, like at six weeks and everything's great. But you're gonna look like a moron if if he comes back at six weeks and the whole thing's displaced. And that's not yeah. a problem that I want to deal with. Unfortunately, she's getting a wheelchair for about six weeks. Yeah. All right. Let's look at the poll here. What most people are thinking. So again, majority are thinking like us. Non weight bearing, weight bear left. So, and if you add, I'm not really sure what the difference between touchdown and now weight bearing is really. I mean, for me, they're kind of the same. So, you're looking at two thirds of people are kind of all in agreement on what to do with this patient's weight bearing status. You know, some people are going to let them do partial weight. Again, like we talked about, I don't think that's wrong. You just have to trust that there's a chance something might go wrong and you're going to have a problem with it. It's just a paper that came out about a decade ago, just talking about early weight bearing and the rationale for it. You know, Back then, there was very little peer-reviewed literature talking about uh, early weight bearing. We've got now more, more and more stuff coming out, ankle fractures, intraarticular knee injuries, et cetera. So good paper to review as the uh, current landscape starts to change. All right. So again, like we said, this was done day of injury. This is the nail that was put down there. Again, I had to stitch these together. So it, I mean, it kind of looks like she's maybe tipped over, but I'm pretty sure she's not. But anything you guys would do differently with this case? Two and two. Anybody do one above and two below? No, yeah. I, I do two above and three below. Yep. Same. Okay. okay. I'm shaking. All right. And then again, three days later, we take her back. And uh, like we talked about, I agree. Do the, I would do the femur first. I think it's just easier to get the femur done and then address the tibia. So you can see here, I did a lateral parapeteller again, because of the lateral split on the medial, lateral side. If it was medial, I would do a medial parapeteller just to get better access there. Knowing that I'm not going to go over the lateral side and put a plate because I'm putting a nail. So what I like to do is I like to get, get it reduced and then wire everything. And I don't want to buy it just yet with screws. Cause if the screws are in the way of my nail, then I got to take them out and then I got missing bones. So I will generally just do wires and leave my clamps on and then do the nail and then switch out for lags around the nail at the end. Do you guys do anything different? I usually put my screws in and then hit them with the interlocking screws and get very frustrated myself and then take them out. <laughs> and do that's, that's, that's my typical MO. I used to do that and I got frustrated. So now I just, I mean, it's easy to switch a wire, right? If, you, if, you, if you're hitting the wire, just add another wire, pull that wire out. And then, so. Uh, only thing I, I, I've gone to do is the one screw I will put in, if I've got a good read, is the anterior cannulated screw. Because mm-hmm. then what I end up doing is that uh, I'll use usually like a bigger, bigger bore, like a 6.5. I'll just send the drill tip wire through. And kind of like you did here with, uh, I'm assuming that's either Weber or even like a, I know almost almost looks like a boat throttle there, but I, I would just throw the the drill bit through and mm-hmm. use that almost as like a steering wheel to kind of bring it out of a uh, extension and then you know do all the nail stuff. Yeah, that's a paraticular clamp. This one, uh, if you can see this one, here's paraticular. The other one's a Weber, and so yeah, I'll actually use that paraticular clamp to pull on the condyles if I need them. If I need to get a little extra length, then I usually just have a bump behind the triangle to kind of work on the sagittal axis, so it lined up fairly well there. You can see here, that's the AP. So I've already, at this point, I'm already dealing with sagittal or coronal plane deformity. So I, at this point, I already put a wire that will control my trajectory in the distal block. Looking in hindsight, this was probably a little too lateral on the start point, which you'll see why at the end, it kind of translates the articular block, maintains a mechanical axis. But in hindsight, I probably should have been over here, aiming up the middle here with this wire, a little bit more medial. Can I ask you guys a question? If when you're doing this, you guys going through the arthrotomy or through the tendon? I go uh, through the arthrotomy. James? I will go through the tendon because I don't want to fight it. 
So that's why I started going through the tendon. I feel like when I go through the thyroid, everything's just pushing me lateral. So mm-hmm. I, <laughs> that's why I go through the tendon because otherwise my floor, I get so mad at myself on the floros afterwards. Yeah, I hate. I, I just hate the struggle. Mike, what what was your uh, approach? What did you do for your incision? This was uh, we just did a midline incision, lateral parapetellar, which is why this ends up being more lateral than I want it to be. Typically, if I'm doing a retrograde nail, I'm medial. I just make a medial incision so I can. Enough to fight it. I don't go through the tendon because I know the tendon's laterally based on the tuberosity. So if I make it, if I do a medial parapetellar, you know, incision for my retrograde nail, just my wire is usually right where it wants to be and I don't have to struggle. So that's the nail going up there and there. And then at this point, I have my blocking screws and then I put my, my lag screws for the joint, the joint work around my interlock. So I'm not running out of real estate. So I've got two screws for the Hoffa and then just one more, which is you could argue this, do I even need this other screw across the intercondo split? I mean, I don't really consider my interlocks to be any sort of compressive screws at the joint. So I'll leave the clamps on out until I get all these screws in. And they're really more position screws at this point with the clamps on, and then I'll take it all off. You don't want to leave worried. So yeah, more, you need more, more, not less one or two proximal James. Uh, two, two rich two. Yeah. I don't see any reason to get cheap with your fixation at the very end. Just put two. We're right there. We're looking right at it. There's the lateral there. And then I didn't really show the schematic, but this is we ended up with the tibia. So again, the same, I clamp the non-displaced fracture at the articular surface, and then I nail it. And then I'll go back and just put the screw at the end, just for position at the end again. Do I need it? Probably not, but I'm going to put it there just to be safe. What do you guys think of the construct here? Anything you'd do differently? No issue with the construct. I think that looks good. Uh, Question, do you routine, like in these fracture patterns, do you routinely test the integrity of the proximal tib-fib joint? Because this looks like a pretty decent lateral and it looks like that the fibula is a little bit laterally. Like I would, I would expect the fibula to be more overlapped with the tibia. Hmm. Yeah. I don't go chasing it. I know their outcomes are terrible, but I don't like messing with it. <laughs> Maybe that's the wrong answer here, but I mean, if it's out in left field, I'll, I'll go back there and I'll, I'll try to reduce it and, you know, put something to hold it there. But Boy, those people do awful. Yeah, yeah. And the, the proximal tibid associations are. Uh, yeah, I think you would have noted it on the CT too coming down. So it feels off out of the joint. Um, no, but I think this looks great. You know, you got, I think the key point is here is making sure you have the nail as proximal as possible because you have all the locking options available. And this is why it's good to be doing this in 2023 where we have, uh, newer technologies that have multiple locking options like this, because this is this is obviously ideal for this kind of high level uh, fracture. Yeah, and, and I love those two blocking screws that you have. Or you know, I don't know, did, did you put those in after the nail was in? Yeah, I almost never put definitive blocking screws first. I'll just usually put I'll use entry wires or drill bits and just yeah, and then I'll swap them for screws at the end. Yeah, when, when they kind of hug and they're sort of like like whittled in between those interlocking screws. I mean, to me, that's just such a such a stable construct. I think it's great. Yeah, that's a that's a, another great paper by uh, Dan Chen, another Tampa Tampa graduate. You know, he did it for the distal tibia, but you know, increasing the biomechanical strength by railing this with with blocking screws increases the biomechanical advantage. So, if this was the only injury, would you let her walk on it, James? I think so. I would really want to. I'd really want to. I don't know that I would, but I would want to. Okay. If it wasn't for the articular, if it wasn't for the articular split, then yes. Okay. Um, with that articular split reduced as well as it is simple split, um, normal, normal person, not neuropathic. I would 
probably let them do it once the once the traumatic wounds were healed. So maybe three weeks. Okay. Rich, still six weeks? <laughs> still six weeks. <laughs> Enjoy your wheelchair. <laughs> I would actually, this it, for these where they, you know, it's a proximal table with a non-displaced articular split. Uh, I'm letting them walk right out of the gate. And I, I, so far, I haven't been burned yet. And let's hope it stays that way. But I'll, boy, I'll, wait, I'll wait for the paper. I'll wait for the paper. <laughs> no, I don't blame you. I mean, just, but boy, my experience has been that you let them walk right away. They just rehab so much quicker and they just get back to, back to activity. Doesn't mean I've, I've had plenty of people who still end up stiff, so it doesn't really help their range of motion. And the ones that want to get stiff are going to get stiff. But boy, I just feel like people that walk right away end up just a little bit better with their rehab. And again, there's that lateral there where we maintain the sagittal alignment. Okay, there's the final immediate post stop there. So you can see it look, you know, this nail probably needs to be just a hair, two millimeters medial, and it would be absolutely perfect. But fortunately, it looks like the mechanical axis has been maintained. So I can nitpick it, but I'm happy with it. So again, we agreed earlier, we, none of us are going to let this patient walk right away on the right. So James, you said four to six. Rich, you said six. Yeah. James, you get an x-ray at four weeks. You don't see any callus. You going to put them, um, wait two more weeks and get an x-ray then, or are you just going to let them walk at four? I wouldn't get an x-ray at four. I, my first my first set of x-rays would be at six. And I think regardless of what I saw, I would probably let them go and, and, start, and start banging on it. Rich, are you looking for callus before you make the decision or are you just going to let them go? No, Wolf's Law, baby. You know, if I don't see it, it's, it makes me want to walk them more. So six, <laughs> six weeks, it's gonna I'm gonna let it fly. Okay. I like that. I like that. Yeah. My plan, I think, was six weeks for her. She ended up in my clinic at four weeks for whatever reason. So we ended up getting an X-ray, and we said, "Screw it, just start walking." So it would have been six, but she ended up in my clinic at four, and I wasn't gonna have her come back in two. And there's a tibia. I'm not sure why the corner's cut off, but again, that's that's the four week X-ray there. So again, I don't see any callus, but like you guys said, I'm still going to let her start walking on it. And here are three months. So she's been walking this thing now for eight weeks, uh, crushing her rehab, doing great. She's got 150 degrees of flexion of her knee. And this x-ray is reassuring. She's laying down callus, lateral and medial. So for me, this is a big win. There you can see it there. Oh, this what do you guys think of the x-ray? It's kind of where you'd expect her to be, ahead, ahead behind. Yeah, this is a day maker, right? Like you see this, you see the name on your list going to the clinic, you see the films, and you're just like, <laughs> right? So I'm, I'm, I'm certainly, certainly pumped about the level of healing. Mm-hmm. That posterior cortex looks great. That's always the area I, I, I worry about in the fever, especially that posterior medial side, and it looks like it's consolidating. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. Yeah, agree. I'm, I'm not worried at all. I, I would be surprised if she did not go on the union at this point. Yeah, there's the tibia there. So she, and she's got laying down some good bone lateral. You can see she's starting to heal up medial there as well. And there still needs to fill in the front, which is going to fill in last. But yeah, I was pretty happy. I was, I was very happy with these three-month x-rays. Like to Rich's point, you see the name there and you're like, oh, I hope there's nothing wrong. And then you get your x-rays and the patient's doing great. And it's like high fives all around. So, and then the left side predictably gets lots of cows because it was closed and relatively simple. All right. Any other thoughts on this case? I thought it looked great. I think uh, for such a horrible injury, you know, I mean, she had she had every reason to have complications with being open and, you know, the amount of combination that she had and to get stiff and, you know, maybe to be slow to heal and, uh, you know, have some pain and things like that. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, overall, short-term follow-up, yeah, you're, we're, we're high-fiving the clinic. Um, I think it looks great. No, I don't think I'm doing anything different. 
Great. Well, I, mean, well, I appreciate a lot, you guys. A lot of important points, you know, that you went through. And, and I think it was a great job. And, you know, waiting for the clinical photo of her doing box jumps or something. Yeah. I'm actually going to, yeah, actually, she should be coming back in the next month for six month follow up. So I'm excited to see her back and see how she's doing. I may have to get some video then and send it to you guys. We'll, soup, do, we'll do part two of the webinar. She's she's a very active 38 year old. She she works out and and is you know athletic. So we'll see if she's doing box jumps. <laughs> I appreciate you guys being on here. Thank you very much. And again, just for the the uh, folks on the webinar, again, if you're interested in learning about cases like this and some of the evolving things in in trauma that are becoming more and more relevant as our our techniques change, uh, take a look at that course. Again, it's in a great spot in Park City in February. So uh, no better time of the year to be in Park City than now. And they've gotten a ton of snow. Um, I think their, their base is like six or seven feet right now. So the best time of year to head out there and hit some, hit the skiing. Okay. So thanks again, guys. Appreciate it, Mike. See you, Rich. Right. Take care guys. See you around.